I want to start off this morning by asking you if you've ever seen something beautiful just become ruined, come to ruin. Up on the big screen right now is uh, this beautiful mural of Jesus called the Ecce Homo, which in, in Latin means uh, Behold the Man, was painted by Elias Garcia Martinez back in the 1930s at a church. And for nearly 100 years, it held a place of honor in the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Spain. But after decades of moisture buildup, the colors started to fade and the paint started to flake. And the problem that they discovered was that on its own, over time, that this painting would inevitably deteriorate. And I think about for ourselves how that doesn't just happen in the physical world, but it also can happen to us spiritually in our relationship, in our faith in Jesus. That once a once beautiful relationship with God also can deteriorate very much over time, that we can backslide into old habits, broken patterns, and sin. And so the question we want to answer this morning is how do we experience restoration instead of relapse when it comes to our spiritual life in Christ? And so if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're in this series called Restore where we've been learning together how we can experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's broken. And that when he does that, he doesn't simply replace those broken parts with other fragile broken parts, but that he builds something new, something better, that is more than just about the walls of Jerusalem, and that it points us forward to what Jesus does, the gospel does in our lives when Jesus comes and restores us and build something new and something better. And so you might remember that the beginning of this whole book, God gave Nehemiah this incredible vision, a conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior to rebuild both the physical as well as the spiritual walls of their families and their communities together in order to welcome people and to worship God. And we're at the point now in the story that they've finished that work. And so after they've done, they're done rebuilding, they experience this tremendous spiritual revival together. Because it's not just about restoration, it isn't just about the walls, it's about worship. And so they read God's word and they repent from sin and they rededicate their city and their lives to God's praises and purposes. But just like us, over time, it's easy for them to, to experience the fires of their spiritual revival fading into the embers of relapse. They find the people of God at this point in history starting to turn from God and his ways, his truth, and his life. And so the question is, how do they prevent it? How does the word of God show us? And today, we're going to look at three crucial areas where Jesus can turn and transform our relapse into restoration. But where we want to start is with the big picture. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign 
descent. This sounds like a terribly harsh passage. So what's happening here? Verses 1 and 2, God's people, they're gathered together to hear a sermon from Deuteronomy chapter 23, specifically specifically verses 3 to 5. And they discover in it that the Bible says in God's word that the Ammonites and the Moabite people, neighbors to Israel and Judah, are excluded from the worship gathering. Well, hold on a sec, Lord. That sounds quite racist and rejecting. Why would you put that in, in, into a, as a rule or a law in, in the Bible? And what we discover in this passage, but also by reading on our own, is that about a thousand years prior to Nehemiah, in Numbers chapters 21 through 25, before God's people enter into the promised land, they're, they're at the border of the promised land, but they have to pass through some other people's lands first. And so they ask peacefully for permission to have a peaceful passage through the lands of Ammon and Moab. And instead of offering to the Israelites hospitality to immigrants who've been wandering through the desert wilderness for over 40 years, the Ammonites decided, we're going to go to war against Israel. And they lost. And the Moabites, they decided, we're going to hire a pagan sorcerer to curse these people. But he couldn't. God instead put words of blessing into Balaam's mouth that came pouring out instead. And this started this incredible historical enmity from the Ammonites and Moabites against the Israelites. But what I want you to see in this passage, and if you read more in Numbers, is that the real problem isn't hostility. It's complacency. Because what happens, just like this painting, just like our spiritual life, is that over time, the Israelites increasingly adopted their neighbors and their ways. They started adopting their neighbor's idolatry and intermarriage with idol worshipers so that it started to lead their families and their nation away from God. And so we saw in in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 that the people repented of their forefather's sin for, for mixing in all this idolatry and intermarriage into their faith and renewing their vows because this command isn't about rejecting a foreigner. It's about rejecting God by adopting the vision and values of people in direct opposition to the Lord and his will. And so in verse 3, the people's hearts are convicted, and it says that as soon as they heard this, they separated themselves. You know in the Bible that that's the word for holy, when you separate yourself for God. And they separated themselves from all the people who did not worship God. Well, Pastor Josh, that still sounds very... Uh, insulting and excluding. And I would actually argue that it is the more loving thing to do. Because I want you to think about this way. In your relationships with people, maybe in dating or marriage or with coworkers, in a healthy relationship, we do two things. Number one is we set boundaries. That means that we don't accept what is toxic, including sin. And secondly, we also provide opportunity for people to make changes. So when, this, when God gives them this law, it's not about if you are Jewish enough or good enough. It's not about your ability or your family genealogy, but it's by faith that you can receive forgiveness and friendship with God to be his people. And we know that's true because even though this law in Deuteronomy says exclude the Ammonites and the Moabites, 400 years before Nehemiah, there was a Moabite widow 
beautiful woman who chose, instead of to stay in her land, to follow her Jewish mother-in-law back to Israel, and she chose to worship God. And so God accepted her, and in fact, she became the grandmother of King David, greatest king in Israel, Israel's history in the Old Testament. Her name? Ruth. And this Moabite woman is also in the family tree of Jesus himself, highly honored. And so it's not about your nationality, it's not about being a foreigner, about rejecting foreigners, but that we and the choices we make to reject God by adopting the values and vision of people who don't love the Lord. And so the big idea for this passage is this morning is that like Nehemiah's people, that we prevent a relapse of our faith by choosing to worship the holy God instead of the ways of the world. Because that's the problem with Israel, that they keep adopting the ways of pagan nations. And so for many of us, we may come to church and the music starts and we think to ourselves, we think that worship is about singing. But what we discover in the Bible is that it's not just what we do with our lips, it's what we do with our lives. That this passage shows us we are to be set apart as different from the world by asking in everything that we do, does it honor God? That's worship. So worship isn't just the words we sing, but worship is what we do to honor God with our words, with our wallet, in our vocation, or when we're on vacation, that these, all these decisions that you and I make are acts of worship. They are not neutral. Because if they do not honor God, it's not that you stop worshiping. You just direct it to someone or something else. And the Bible calls that what? Idolatry. And so if you find yourself sliding away from God in this season, I want you to consider, are your decisions and actions honoring towards God? Do we honor Him as Lord, or are we conforming to the world as Lord? Because what idolatry does, what, when we say that something is of greater priority and preeminence than God, idolatry cuts us off from God, but worship keeps us connected to God. And so today's passage is going to focus on three crucial areas that are as relevant today as they were back then. And perhaps as we study them, Jesus can transform us from relapse towards restoration. Verse 4, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, pre prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, uh, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Man, this guy. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Let's stop right there for a moment. So the first area when it comes to what it looks like to worship God, to honor God with our lives that can help us prevent relapsing in our faith is thinking about whose influence do we invite. 
Verse 4, Eliashib, he's the current high priest in Nehemiah's time. That means he is the senior pastor over the entire nation. And he also, also oversees all the facilities in the temple of God, the center of worship for the nation. And even though he has seen the restoration of God, participated in the revival of God that's being brought to the people through Nehemiah, he's also inviting the influence of Tobiah to come and dwell within the temple of God itself. Because it turns out that he's related to this man through their families having intermarried. Now, do you remember, for those of you who've been tracking with us, who Tobiah is? In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, he is Tobiah the Ammonite official. An Ammonite, the, the very people that God said should be excluded from the from the worship, assembly of worship. And so he is part of the gang uh, that have appeared throughout Nehemiah of non-Jewish officials who don't love God, who don't worship God, and uh, three times they oppose the rebuilding process through their political machinations and intimidations to keep the city and people of God subjugated to the will of their pagan neighbors. But they fail. Three times try, three times fail. And so the question is, okay, Tobiah, after this Does he give up? Does he see the error of his ways? Does he move on? Instead, he comes to the high priest. Come on, bro. Come on, fam. We're family, right? Can you pull some some strings for me? Can you do me a favor? And you know what? Actually, I'm the one doing you a favor. Because it's hard, right, being a senior pastor, especially with all these changes that the governor Nehemiah has made. I, I thought you were the spiritual leader of the nation. So I'll tell you what. Why don't you let me help? I just want to kind of come in, support you, serve the needs of the people. Because what's happening here is that for Tobiah, he cannot stop the work and will of God from without. And so he tries to manipulate and contaminate the worship of God from within. And so in verse 5, Pastor Eliashib, he takes this large room that's reserved for all the worship tools, tithes, and offerings, and he says, look at it, this big room is unused. And so I have an idea. Why don't you move in here? You can set up your home office. That would be a great help to me. I'm looking forward to you as my family helping me out and giving me advice. And so in verse 6 through 7, we discover that all this is happening while Nehemiah is out of town. And so you might remember that he received permission and provision from the Persian emperor, that's who his boss was, to come and and rebuild uh, his home city in Jerusalem. And so after 12 years, the work is complete. And so he leaves and goes back to his boss, the Persian emperor, because the work is done. And he takes a few weeks off to revisit the royal court. And we don't know how long he stayed there, but it's kind of implied that it wasn't a short period. Maybe a few weeks could have been a month, a couple of months. However long it took him to travel all the way back to the capital of Persia and then return to Jerusalem. And when he returns, he cannot believe his eyes. And he calls it as it is. What is this evil Eliashib has done for Tobiah? That would be like if one of you came walking into the sanctuary this morning and just called me out on stage for the evil that I had done. And in verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah is angry. And I want you to see this. He is angry righteously, not sinfully. A lot of times we talk about the sinful ways we express our anger, which we do need to confess and repent to the Lord. But there are times when there's injustice and immorality that we grow angry on behalf of God's glory, not ours. And it is right. It is righteous. And in so doing, he gets angry because there's this man who does not worship God 
parked in the center of worship. This room that should belong to God has been given to Tobiah. Where there should be the presence of God, it's replaced by the influence, influence of the ungodly. And so what does this guy do? He goes and kicks Tobiah and his stuff to the curb like a toxic ex. And then has the chamber of the Lord cleansed and the worship elements and the offering returned. And so what we discover with the Israelites way back then was that in order to prevent a relapse in their faith, they do not let an ungodly people uh, represent, uh, replace the presence and influence of God in how we worship with our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says that the Lord commands us, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. And it's not meant as an excluding or, or rejecting way. But the picture there is being yoked to someone is like two oxen who are bound together. They're interdependent in partnership. That when one of them walks, the, the other one has to walk in step with them. Otherwise, you're dragging someone behind or you're being pulled by the neck, which is very uncomfortable. That we cannot be yoked with someone who doesn't share the same values and visions as us because I want you to think about it. How are you going to build your home, your business, your family, your ministry together with the common values and vision of God if your partner doesn't share those things. And so by inviting Tobiah, who does not love and live for God, into the temple, who continues to oppose the work of God while posing as if he's trying to assist God, allowing him to take a seat at the table by his example, his input and influence, it is poisonous, it is toxic, it is deadly to the hearts of the people of God. Now, do you remember that beautiful painting that got ruined that I talked about at the beginning of the message today? It gets worse. In August of 2012, the priest of that church, he allowed this 80-year-old church member named Cecilia Jimenez to touch it up. And despite her good intentions, it did not go well. <laughs> the New York Times says that this was the worst art restoration project of all time. A BBC article wrote, this once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. And experts were, experts were brought in to try to repair it. But you see, the original painting was done in oils directly on the walls of this church. And so it was impossible to reverse the damage. You see, this is what happens when you trust the wrong authority or influence. And it's the difference between experiencing restoration or devastation. Now, I want you to hear me clearly, especially if you're not, not a, a follower of Jesus yet, because when we read something like this, it sounds very excluding and insulting. But what the Bible is not saying is that you're supposed to cut off your friendships with people who are not Christians, because that's not the truth, right? Jesus calls us, the Bible calls us to love people, to show kindness and forgiveness and acceptance to the people around us. Because how can they experience the grace of God if we're not showing them the grace of God? But it does mean if that you have close friends or family or relatives or acquaintances, that if Jesus is not their priority and authority, that you do not let them shape or shift the decisions you make about your spiritual life, about your finances, about your family, about your future in place of God. Because that's what Tobiah did, right? He comes in and replaces God in the temple in opposition to God's word and his ways, his will and his worship. 
And so I want to ask you, I wonder who have you invited into your temple? In other words, whose input and example influence how you live for God and how you worship God with your life, the decisions that you make? And my question for you is, if it is toxic, drawing you away from the Lord, like Tobiah, who do you need to kick to the curb? Let's look at the second area that's ripe for relapse this morning, starting from verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah, uh, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And so you may remember back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they make this vow before God, this commitment to give to the work and worship of God because he is their highest priority. And in fact, we skipped this passage last time, but in chapter 12, verse 44, uh, the people of Judah gather the tithes, gather the offerings according to the word of God, including joyfully giving to support the priests and the Levites who minister in the temple. And then some time has passed and something has changed in their attitude and actions. Verse 10, Nehemiah discovers it's not just that with welcoming uh, Tobiah that, that the tithes are not being stored in the temple, but the reality is that none of it's been given. None, there's none being collected to give to the pastors or the worship leaders or the administrative staff who love and serve God and, and the church. And the result is all these pastors and priests, they've fled to the fields to work so that they can eat, so they can feed their families, so they can make a livable wage. And what that means is with all the, the ministry staff deserting the church, the temple, that all the worship activities have ceased in the house of God. So verse 11, Nehemiah confronts the community leaders, and he identifies what the real issue is. Why, have you, why is the house of God forsaken? So it's not about greedy churches and pastors begging people, always begging people to give money. This is a worship issue. It's about forsaking God, his glory, and his ministry to people. And in response to the credit of the people in verses 12 and 13, they are inspired uh, to bring the full tithes, the full offerings to God, their first fruits to God. And Nehemiah appoints uh, reliable people of character to oversee this, distributing it to the, those who serve the Lord. And I always appreciate God. I appreciate his word covering this topic. I appreciate our church because actually our church takes very good care of those in ministry. And I'll tell you what, uh, it's exceptional because I have many friends in ministry and I know many pastors who are struggling silently and financially, but they won't bring it up. But that's not the focus of this passage because that's sometimes how we read it. What it's actually focusing on is how we are not to let ungodly influence undermine our worship of God through our giving. That we talk about for those who follow Jesus, that if we really love Jesus and live for Jesus, then we also honor him 
by giving uh, our first fruits to him, of, uh, to his work and to his worship. Come on, Josh. It's just another one of those messages where God just wants my money. No, what he really wants is your heart. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so I want to challenge you. If you want to know where your heart really is, follow your treasure. Follow your budget. Because how you use money is not just a financial decision. It's a worship decision. It's about who and what we really treasure. It's about who and what is really Lord in our lives. You just check your, your bank statements to find out. And so we want to give back to God joyfully and thankfully and sacrificially, not to earn his love and acceptance, but in response to it. It is already given to you because of how much that he has given us through his son as a sacrifice for our sin and death to give us forgiveness in life. And so one of the clearest tests about how much of your life is oriented towards God is lived in worship towards trusting him, honoring him, is how regularly and generously we give to him, to his work and to his worship. You see, many people claim to follow Jesus in principle, and some of us need to actually make that practical and put our money where our mouth is. And I pr promise you what the word of Lord, the Lord promises you as well, that that will counteract the spiritual deadness that sometimes we experience as we learn to honor Jesus as Lord instead of our money or our stuff. Okay, final critical area that we want to deal with when it comes to relapse. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I, Nehemiah, confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Sorry, we're stopping kind of in the middle of a thought because we'll finish it up when we wrap up uh, we're, this, this passage and the whole book. But what I want you to see here is in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 31, previously, they made this vow before God. Remember, they renewed their covenant commitments. They made all these promises. And one by one, we see them breaking them. Uh, but they committed to worship God by observing a Sabbath in obedience to Scripture. Some of you know what a Sabbath is. It's, it's taking that last day off of the week in honor of God. And, and it's a way that we declare that God is so important, we, he is so worthy of honor that I will shut down my business or my busyness in order to take an entire day off to trust in the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to gather together in worship of the Lord. And we see in verse 15 and 16 that people relapse in their vow. Nehemiah discovers that uh, the people of God are going about the Sabbath as if it's any other day, uh, working and harvesting and transporting goods. And it turns out the reason why is because they're following the example of these non-Jewish group of people in Jerusalem called the Tyrians from Tyre, uh, who uh, the Israelites have allowed to buy and sell and trade with them in Jerusalem, this very center of worship in this nation. 
But I want you to pay attention to this. Verse 17 and 18, Nehemiah does not blame the Tyrians for their influence. Instead, he confronts the leaders of Judah for their disobedience. What is this evil that you, the people of God, are doing in profaning the Sabbath day? It's the same sin as our forefathers who turned away from God and his ways and his worship to adopt those of the idolatrous society around us. That's exactly what led to Israel experiencing consequences and conquered and exiled in Babylon for a hundred years, which is why Nehemiah and the people are returning at this point in history. And the point here is that we don't let ungodly influence undermine our worship of God through Sabbath rest. You see, it's very easy to follow the example of the world around us, to rationalize why I need to squeeze in that little bit of extra work to meet my deadlines, to fill my day of rest with catching up on my chores, to cram as much fun and experiences as I can into that so that I come out of my weekend even more tired than when I came into it, instead of setting a time, time and space for rest, for renewal, for worship. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we honor and worship those things in place of God on our Sabbath. Honestly, I am the biggest hypocrite to be standing up on stage and preaching to you about it today because I'm the worst at this. Uh, Many of you who know me well and my wife can confirm for you that I constantly work long hours Or I entertain myself for long hours to make up for all the times I have to work. I'm really good at relying on my own ability and strength instead of Jesus. And the result in my life, instead of following the rhythm that is established by God by his instruction and his example, is that I am an extremely tired, cranky, and kind of a jerk with my family, if I'm honest. But I'm learning. You know, uh, most Saturday afternoons, my Uh, My wife and kids, uh, they either nap or rest, and that's the time when I'm playing catch-up. I'm writing, madly writing the sermon for all all the things that I haven't finished during the week, and so that's when I catch up writing the sermon. But yesterday, when I was working on on this message, in fact, all my kids woke up earlier from their naps than usual. They came, come downstairs, and they're just kind of you know, doing that thing where kids, that kids do, they're, they're trying not to bug you, but they're just kind of hanging around and poking around and touching your stuff and wanting to sit in your lap and touch your keyboard. And so uh, as they're hanging around my home office, you know, normally what I would do is just shoo them away. Come on. Daddy has, I'm very important work that I need to do, right? I need to finish up my work. But God was speaking to me at the leadership retreat we had together yesterday morning. Honor me. Enjoy me. Rest from your kids and even enjoy your, rest from your work. Excuse me, not rest from your kids. I wish, enjoy your kids. And so I spent the afternoon uh, losing at Monopoly to a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl. That tells you something, right? Don't ever trust me with money. Apparently, I'm not very good with it. But in honoring and obeying Jesus, I actually came out from that time with my heart and my soul refilled and refueled to make it easier for me to finish my work. There's a reason that God establishes a pattern for us. Because many of you are actually doing the opposite. You think you're being more productive by working more and being more tired, but you're actually growing less and less productive, and the battery that you have is becoming 
less able to hold a charge because of the destruction you're doing on yourself. And so I want you to hear me clearly. Some of you, especially in this congregation of very smart, capable people, busyness can be one of the greatest enemies to worship. That too often, uh, you and I will turn our backs away from God. We'll turn back from God because we're trying to honor Him out of our emptiness instead of His fullness in our lives. But instead, by taking a Sabbath, we proclaim that my activity, my productivity, and my pleasures are not Lord, but that Jesus is. And so I want to ask you, how do you need to honor God with a Sabbath today? And I know some of you, I know you, You've been running so hard, so fast, for so long that you don't know how to slow down until you're run down and you're burnt out. And if you worship Jesus through sacrificing some of your time to rest, to go to church, to worship God, to grow your faith, to enjoy your family and your friends and the fruit of your labor, you're discovered during those moments when you feel drained that he pours into our joy, our strength, our souls, so that we live out his fullness, we live out of his fullness instead of our emptiness. And so I want to challenge you, really, what do you need to cut out of your life? What needs to change in your calendar, in your inbox, in your activity? Now, many of you know my story that I'm a recovering drug addict and that by the grace of God and the goodness of a Savior that I've been able to come to experience tremendous joy and peace and freedom and life. But Jesus has also taught me to recognize the danger signs when I'm on the verge of relapse. In a addiction talk, it's called halt. When I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, those are all triggers, potential danger signs of being relapsing. And through the goodness of Christ and the wisdom of others, I've learned how to fill those needs with better things in better ways. And I want to tell you that there are some signs that you are on the verge of relapse in your faith. That like Nehemiah's people, you may have experienced great spiritual revival, but over time, the fire fades and we're surrounded by so many voices beckoning us to live a life just like everybody else in the world around us, apart from the goodness of God. And it turns out that the very things that you vowed not to do become the very areas that you slip into relapse. And so like the Jewish people from this story in history, that if we're not careful, we will also replace God with the wrong presence or influence. We'll replace God with our financial needs and our greeds and our financial worries. We'll replace God with busyness. And the antidote to spiritual relapse is choosing to worship the holy God instead of the ways of the world. Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 that you are in this world, but you are not of this world. That we are set apart as different from the world. And the way that we do that is by living and asking what, how does this honor you, Lord? And so those times where you're spiritually dry, where you're tempted to drift away from Jesus in relapse, 
I want to remind you, this year-long series that we've been going through on, on restoration, restoration for our, our hearts, our souls, our boundaries, our families, our communities, and our lives, sometimes the area that we need the most restoration is in how we worship the Lord, how we live in His grace, how we live for His glory. And so may you give God great worship through your attention and devotion rather than to someone else's voice, through your dollars and your gaze, and that you would find that instead of it being a sacrifice, that instead God pours into you his fullness, his restoration for your soul. May I pray for you? Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's been a season of celebration and worship, that the coming of Jesus who lived the sinless life we could not live, who suffered the death on our behalf on a cross, who rose from the dead to give us life and victory over sin, suffering, and death forever and restore our friendship with you. Those are great and wonderful things. And so our hearts have been filled with joy. And at the same time, as wonderful as it is to experience revival in our hearts, the realities and pressures and problems of life take a toll on us. Over time, things fade and deteriorate. Over time, we can relapse into sinful patterns and brokenness. So God, today, would you encourage your people, turn our eyes upwards, that our lives are about worship, about honoring you and enjoying you forever, and not just with our lips, but with every area of our lives. And particularly, God, would you help us to root out things that can draw us, that can cripple us into relapse? Wrong voices or influences that are toxic that we need to cut out of our lives. Selfishness and control over our finances instead of generosity. And busyness where we allow productivity or pleasure to take the place of Jesus as Lord in our lives. Would you do a work in our hearts these, this morning and set us free, fill us once again. In Jesus' name.